Well, good morning. I realize that if you're new to the church, you probably don't even know who I am. Uh, my name is Larry Trotter, and I've been away on six months of sabbatical, and I'm very thankful, very thankful to be back with you this morning. Uh, the next three weeks, I hope to share with you some of the things that I've been thinking about and reflecting on, things that God has had me uh, wrestling through uh, over these six months that I hope will be a great encouragement to you. I also hope to just share a little bit about some of the uh, adventures and different things I got to do on this time. One of the, one of the very best things I got to do, though, was to uh, take our staff elders and their spouses away to a mountain retreat for a couple days just as a way of saying thank you to them. Uh, they worked really hard, shouldered a lot, of, a, a lot of load that they didn't normally bear while I was away. And so we went up to uh, what was a... Um, Absolutely beautiful. We started in this chapel that overlooked Seven Mile Ridge, Mount Mitchell, log chapel up in the mountains, and spent time there consecrating our time to the Lord. The next day, they got to just spend alone with the Lord uh, up in the mountains, and it was absolutely gorgeous. And we capped it off at uh, the end of our time there together. We went to uh, the Grove Park Inn, if you've ever been there. It's an absolutely beautiful place up in Asheville. Um, and we give you a sense for perspective on this place. We are standing in the fireplace at this point in time. It's an absolutely amazing place. And uh, it was just a small way I got to share some uh, of what I've been experiencing during this time with people who I love and to say thank you to them. I hope that you will continue to say thank you to them. I understand that they are all available for a return visit to the Grove Park should you want to whisk them off there to Asheville to dinner they would be glad to accept that as a token of your thankfulness as well. Um, but over the next three weeks, I want to be walking through some of what I've been meditating on. And this week, we want to look at a 3,000-year-old story. Uh, it's a story about me and about you and about God. And it comes from Isaiah chapter 30, if you'd like to look there in your Bible. And... This is the way that the Bible works. It's a window for us to see God like we'll never see Him anywhere else. But at the same time that it's a window, it's a mirror. And in that mirror, we will see ourselves like we'll see ourselves nowhere else. This is the absolute wonder um, of the Scriptures uh, to us. And as we open our Bibles this morning, we are asking God by the ministry of His Spirit and the Word to show us His glory and let us see ourselves. So I'd like to now lead us in a time of readiness for that and just bow and we'll have a time just to confess any known sin so that we might hear well and follow well as God speaks to us through His Word. And I'll be reading from... Um, an ancient prayer from the, the Book of Common Prayer. So let's bow together in prayer, if you would. And as we bow, let us humbly confess our sins to Almighty God. O most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, in word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart, and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. 
we are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, this, this story comes to us from the prophet Isaiah. It's found in chapter 30. But if you were to drop back almost 3,000 years in history, what was going on at this point in time was the people of God were tragically divided. There was a northern kingdom called Israel and a southern kingdom called Judah. The northern kingdom was being pressed uh, by the nation of Assyria, one of the superpowers of the day and their arch enemy. And they were either about to or had already been taken captive, actually, by Assyria. This, of course, made the southern kingdom, Judah, nervous. And so they came up with a plan. In order to resist Assyria, they would align themselves with one of the other superpowers of the day, Egypt. And as I listen to that, uh, I don't know about you, but that sounds like a pretty prudent plan, Um, a good way uh, to resist Assyria. Isaiah is prophesying to that southern kingdom about that alliance, and he discloses what God has to say about it. Let's look and see what God thinks of that alliance. It says, Woe to the obstinate children, declares the Lord. And we know already that this was not a good alliance. The very first word, woe, this is, this is funeral language of great and sorrowful judgment on God's people. So from the first word, it's evident that God did not like this plan. And in the next couple of verses, he rolls out a whole string of reasons why. Woe to the obstinate children, declares the Lord. To those who carry out plans... That are not mine, forming an alliance, but not by my spirit, heaping sin upon sin, who go down to Egypt without consulting me, who look for help to Pharaoh's protection, to Egypt's shade for refuge. So, again, um, the people of Judah were seeking refuge security against the nation of Assyria by aligning themselves with Egypt. And the problem, really problems with this approach, are all kind of trotted out for us in these verses. God says they are stubborn. They will not listen to his counsel. They are disobedient. These are their plans, not God's. In fact, they're contrary to God's. If you go back through the Old Testament, you remember, of course, God's people had been captive in Egypt, they'd been delivered from Egypt, and they were commanded not to go back to Egypt. In Deuteronomy 17, it writes to the king of God's people, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them, for the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way. So that should have given them great pause about an alliance with Egypt, but it did not. They were just disobedient. They were arrogant and self-sufficient. They didn't even consult God. Somebody had an idea. Seemed like a good plan. So they did it. 
God wasn't even in the picture. And as a result of that, they eventually even became idolatrous in their actions. They placed their trust in Egypt instead of God. It's interesting the language that's used here. It says, they look to, for help to Pharaoh's protection, to Egypt's shade for refuge. This is language that's supposed to describe the way people trust God. For instance, in Psalm 34, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And they were seeking refuge in Egypt. So let me just stop right there and ask you a question. Let me hold this up like a mirror and ask you if you can see yourself in that mirror. Ever run ahead of God with your own plans? Ever tackle something without consulting Him? Here's one way you can tell if you're vulnerable to this. When something goes well, who gets the credit? Who gets the credit when something goes well for you? Is your life marked by thankfulness? I ran across a fascinating survey of senior corporate executives with a high net worth. These are guys who have a net worth of a million dollars or more, not counting their principal residence. And the question was, who do you credit, um, who or what do you credit your financial success to, your current financial status? 99% of them said hard work. 97% said intelligence and good sense. 83% said a higher than average IQ, 62% said being the best in every situation, and 32% said dumb luck. But there's no record in the survey of anybody mentioning God. Who gets the credit? Another simple way to think about it is have you prayed about it? Really pray about it? A prayer of submission and trust where you'll do whatever God asks you to do in this situation. A prayer that takes, that's earnest and takes time. Not one of those, oh God help me as you're on the way to the meeting or as you've already made the decision and you're going to close the deal. Bless my plan God. Could it be rightly said of you that you carry out plans that are not God's made without even consulting Him? You know, I know from experience you can pastor a church like this. You can attend seminary and operate like this. I think, honestly, it's a plague at our seminary. You can go to work like this. You can parent your kids like this. You can manage your marriage like this. You can deal with relationships like this. Could it be said of you that you carry out plans that are not God's, made without even consulting Him? You know, there's an old saying, you've heard it often, I think. A day without prayer is a boast against God. How about a morning? Is a morning without prayer okay? How about a meeting? 
an appointment without prayer. Submitting a proposal without prayer. Disciplining a child without prayer. Are you consulting God? Or are you running ahead of Him? People in Isaiah's day were running ahead of God, but actually uh, they moved from that to worse. They moved from running ahead of God to actually uh, running from Him in a sense. If you look down at verses 9 and 10... God is still speaking to them severely. He says, these are rebellious people, deceitful children, children unwilling to listen to the Lord's instructions. So first, they, they didn't even bother to ask. And then when they heard, they didn't want to hear it. They say to the seers, see no more visions. And to the prophets, give us no more visions of what is right. Tell us pleasant things. Prophesy illusions. So now they've become rebellious, deceitful, and unteachable, unwilling to listen to the Lord's instruction. In fact, they go so far as not even wanting to hear the truth from God. They want to hear nice things, pleasant things. They have become deeply and tragically ensnared. And this shows up in kind of strange ways in our lives sometimes. I've seen people who adopt a just-the-facts approach to the Bible. They know the Bible backwards and forwards, but they are not changed by it. They want it to be a window. They refuse to let it be a mirror. Some others dodge. Um, When things aren't going quite right in their life, they just don't show up around here. They think, I'll I'll just stay home today. I'll just skip small group this week. I'm not going to go to life change because they're dodging. Um, Honestly, how do you respond to correction from the Word of God? Um, How do you respond to, to rebuke? I remember fairly early in the life of our church, uh, one of our leaders took me aside and he cautioned me um, that I was leading the church away from a vibrant dependence upon the Word of God. <laughs> I, I remember thinking, are you talking to me? <laughs> Excuse me? I went to seminary forever to learn the Word of God. Yeah, I can read it backwards, forwards. Hebrew, Greek. What? I, I preach expositorily. Are you kidding? And, uh, you know, to this day, every time I think back on that rebuke, um, I thank God for it. Because I think he was right. You know, when you are, um, when you're the guy who's been described as the easy listening pastor, the smooth jazz pastor is another one, uh, you know, the elevator music pastor, I can hardly wait what comes next, you know. Um, And then it says, tell us pleasant things. 
I love to tell you pleasant things. I really do. I'm good at telling you pleasant things. They always joke uh, in the elder meetings about me putting pillows around the hard stuff. And, uh, you know, it's, it's not far from putting pillows around hard truth to just sliding the hard truth and putting a pillow there instead of it. And so though I didn't like it at the time, I thank God for that rebuke. I needed that rebuke. That rebuke chases me till this day. How do you respond to a rebuke? When somebody you know comes up alongside you and they poke you in the chest and they say, what are you doing? What are you doing? This is not of God. How do you respond to that? You defend yourself? You dodge that person the next time around? Or do you acknowledge that you need that? That on your best days, you actually want that, and you welcome that. Well, it is precisely this attitude of running from God and this approach to life where God is not consulted, that God pronounces a series of woeful judgments on his people in Isaiah 30. Back in verse 3, they've just said, we want Pharaoh, right? We're going to partner with Pharaoh, the, the prince of Egypt, the king of Egypt. But Pharaoh's protection, God says, will be your shame. Egypt's shade will bring you disgrace. Though they have officials in zone and their envoys have arrived in Hanes, everyone will be put to shame because of a people useless to them who bring neither help nor advantage but only shame and disgrace. God says, you want Egypt? You get Egypt. Let me show what Egypt will do for you. And he lets disaster, he lets failure come upon his people. Because though Egypt was a great nation, Egypt is a horrible God. And it gets worse. The the judgments are worse. If you skip down to verse 12, this is what the Holy One of Israel says. Because you have rejected this message, relied on oppression, and depended on deceit, this sin will become for you like a high wall, cracked and bulging that collapses suddenly in an instant it will break in pieces like pottery shattered so mercilessly that among its pieces not a fragment will be found for taking coals from a hearth or scooping water out of a cistern those are strong words vivid imageries of a severe judgment that God is going to bring on his people because Just because they made a little alliance, you know, did some planning. It seems a little harsh. But when you look through the window of what's going on here, it shows us something about God. God will not be marginalized. He will not play second fiddle. He will not sit on the sidelines. He will not be a junior partner. He will not be an equal partner for that matter. He must be consulted, but he will not be treated like a mere consultant. He is Lord, and he will not bless a life that attempts to offer him some lesser place. 
If you digress from that rightful and necessary order, God will release you to the full consequences of your folly, which we can see in this account are great. They are very great. Have you ever watched this play out in someone's life? Maybe, maybe someone in the mirror? I've watched it play out. And it looks, looks like this. Guy bids on a job. He gets the job. He wishes he'd never gotten the job. It's horrible. It's cost overruns. It's, it's dishonest employees. It's broken tools. It's a disaster. On his way home from the job, his truck breaks down in the worst possible place, in the midst of traffic, on the hottest day of the year, and his cell phone doesn't work. And he gets up the next day, and it's more of the same. And it's just like this. It's as though God has turned his back, that God is hiding. And he can't figure out why. He goes to church when he can. He shows up to small groups, especially on those potluck nights. He tries to do the right thing. He asks God to bless his plans when he thinks of it. It just seems no matter how hard he works, it doesn't work. He's even got one of those bumper stickers that says, God is my co-pilot. The problem is, God does not want to be your co-pilot. He refuses to be your co-pilot. He doesn't want you anywhere near the controls. He wants to be the pilot. He demands that he be Lord. And if you resist him, he will release you to the consequences of that horrible choice. Well, in verse 15, the very next verse, this is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says. In repentance and rest is your salvation, your, your rescue. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. You said, no, 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 we'll flee on horses. That's our plan. Therefore, God says, you will flee. You said, um, we will flee, we'll ride off on swift horses. God says, therefore, your pursuers will be swift. A thousand will flee at the threat of one, and at the threat of five, you will all flee away till you are left like a flagstaff on a mountaintop, like a banner on a hill. In repentance and rest, in quietness and trust is your salvation and your strength. But tragically, they would have none of it. And we are good, we are not good, excuse me, at these things either. We don't rest well. We don't repent well. We don't trust well. I can't urge you enough how important it is that amidst all your hard work, and you should work hard, there has to be time to consult God earnestly, slowly, quietly, so that you have a chance to really, really hear from Him like Jesus did 
Read any one of the biographies of Jesus, and this pops up all over the place. This pattern from Mark chapter 1. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. This follows a day of intensive ministry on Jesus' part, and it changes the direction of his ministry. He leaves here and departs on a whole new thing. Jesus went away to consult the Father and receive direction for his life and ministry. How much more do we need that? When was, when was the last time you took an hour of prayer to seek and submit to God about something that mattered to you? Something you were up against that was just bigger than you. You knew it was bigger than you. You knew it mattered. And you went away for at least an hour just to seek and submit to God. To rest and be quiet and trust. Um, They would have none of it. What about you? Do these things mark you? Will these things mark you? If you are willing this morning to say yes, 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 I want, I want to return to God. I want to repent of running my own life. I want to rest. I want to be quiet. I want to trust Him. I will repent of my proud, anxious, self-directed life. If you will have this, what God is offering you here, if you will but cry out to Him and return to Him from your own plans and schemes, listen to what God has to say to you. Listen to this portrait of God. It is stunning. Yet the Lord, Isaiah says, longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for Him. Oh, people of Zion who live in Jerusalem, you will weep no more. How gracious He will be when you cry for help as soon as He hears. He will answer you. Although the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, your teachers will be hidden no more. With your own eyes, you'll see them. Whether you turn to the right or the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, This is the way. Walk in it. What What an amazing picture of God. He longs to be gracious to you. He waits on high to show you compassion. He's a God of justice and blesses those who wait upon Him. He ends our weeping. And though He has brought affliction upon us in our disobedience, He is gracious when we cry to Him in prayer. Answering the cry for help, the cry of repentance, as soon as He hears it, And he gives us then teachers to show us the way we should walk. And it changes us, Isaiah says. And he's going to say it in the most graphic way imaginable. Uh, Let me read it to you. Then, he says, 
you will defile your idols overlaid with silver and your images covered with gold. You will throw them away like a menstrual cloth and say to them, away with you. I don't, I don't think I can add to that. <laughs> That's transformation. So, will you have any of this? Will you this morning, even before you leave this room, repent of running ahead of God? Maybe even running away from God? And rest in Him and trust in Him in new ways? See, probably some of you this morning have an extraordinarily heightened awareness right now of something that you're doing that God has said no to. Or perhaps something that you're supposed to be doing that you have said no to. And there is an invitation this morning that's echoing down from 3,000 years ago for you. And it just says that in repentance and rest is your rescue. It's your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. Will you have any of it? As we close our time together, the worship team is going to lead us in that closing declaration of our love for and commitment to pursue God. But maybe a first step of response for you this morning once they start leading us in that would simply be to come, come for prayer. And if you're able to kneel down here in the front as a symbol of submission to God and, and just confess whatever it is that God is prompting and pressing you about this morning. And imagine for a number of us that's happening. Um, and then um, once you gather down here during the song, I'll... I'll lead us together as a church family in prayer. A prayer of repentance and trust in God alone. So if you'll stand, let me pray for us. And then let's respond to that which God is saying to us this morning. Okay. Father, give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see how exalted you are, how gracious you are. Give us courage to respond and trust that the invitation you're giving us this morning is the best that it brings you the most glory and it brings to us surely the greatest good. So may our response honor you in this room and, and especially, especially when we leave this room and life becomes busy once again. Marcus, Lord, as people who consult you and follow you, 
No matter what. We pray this in the name of Christ for his sake.